Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. I'm going to kick things off with a confession, which is that usually Sean and I take at least a week to edit our episodes and figure out what we're going to say in our intros and everything like that. But for this episode, we got a little behind coming out of the holidays. So we ended up putting everything together in a day, like the day before we were putting out the episode. I literally said to you, we have so much work to do today, I could cry. But we made it. Hopefully, a lot of you can relate to this, like getting something done just in the nick of time. And we're confessing this to you because today's episode is all about embracing your imperfections and not being afraid to share them with the world. Imperfections are real and people respond to real. Sometimes being genuine can count for a lot more than looking perfect. In that spirit, today we have three stories about being real. You'll hear from Elizabeth Graham, a senior customer support representative at Basecamp, about sounding like a real human being in emails. Then we have a conversation with the founder of a company that injects reality into an industry that's known for almost exactly the opposite. And we talked to two startup founders who tried an experiment in radical transparency to save their failing company. But first up, my conversation with Elizabeth Graham from Basecamp Customer Support. I'm a poet and I taught writing for a long time. It felt like a sort of natural fit in terms of the way we try to communicate and help people and the fact that there is just a lot of writing that comes with the job. When you take a step back and look at customer support more broadly, whether it's, um, you know, looking at other companies and how they do it or just in your own experience as a consumer, what are some common issues that raise your hackles, especially on the communication and like writing side? We've probably all had that experience when we feel like we aren't really being heard when we're on, you know, the customer side of the customer support dynamic. Anytime there's a really overly scripted response that can feel like it creates extra distance um, and makes it harder to kind of meet in the middle and solve a problem. At Beast Camp, is there such a thing as a house style or a house tone? The most important aspect of it is that we sound like ourselves. So of course, that means we're all going to sound a little bit different from one another. But as long as we're uh, genuine I think that comes across no matter what type of question it is. And then also in training, because often when people come in, and this was certainly true for me, because I was like so focused on trying to get the right information and make sure my answers were correct, which is a good thing, uh, you know, sometimes I was still a little bit more stilted. And so sometimes it actually takes more time for some of that more formal language to kind of fall away so we can really feel like we're communicating as ourselves. Are there certain phrases you try to avoid or that you coach new team members to avoid? We try not to say things like sorry for the inconvenience or apologies for the inconvenience, uh, mostly because a phrase like that is so overused that It doesn't really sound like anything. And I think a lot of times the way people feel about problems or confusions or whatever 
is is not just as flat as an inconvenience. We try to say something that's a little more direct or genuine or more kind of related to what that problem is. Something else that strikes me uh, that I learned early on, our team member Chase told me about this, to try to avoid saying actually, because we don't want to make it seem like it was obvious and, you know, that person just missed it or didn't understand, you know, something that was so easy. Actually, you're wrong. Even if the you're wrong isn't there, sometimes I think it can feel implied and we want to avoid that for sure. What's the um, the guidance on things like emoji or exclamation points, that kind of thing? Well, we don't want to go too overboard. And we also don't really lean super heavily on emoji in part because we don't always know like what people will be reading these responses on. And sometimes, uh, you know, they look different or strange. So we actually are more likely to go with the old school colon closing parentheses to make a smiley face. We probably use more exclamation points than I was strictly used to when I started. I and probably most of the team are of the school that like, you know, it's much better to overdo it with exclamation points than underdo it. Just because there's such a possibility for tone to go awry. And so if we err on the side of being maybe extra chipper, I think that's probably a decent trade-off for sounding a little too curt. There's a little cartoon I saw recently of a woman, I think like calling the FBI or something and saying like, I just got an email that said, thanks, period. So I'm pretty sure I'm about to be killed. Uh, Is there some place I should report this? Or, and I was like, wow, I can really relate to that. Yeah, I've been that person like typing thanks and period and like deleting and doing the exclamation point and like deleting it and putting the period just like five minutes later, still doing, still doing that same thing. Yeah. You know, it's a dance. Because it's like you have to read the um, the letter writer's tone as well, right? If they seem maybe stressed out or they're already kind of angry, like you have to you have to kind of make a judgment call, right? Whether the exclamation point or the emoticon will disarm them or enrage them further. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And mirroring is a big part of it. Sometimes people really do just want to get right to it. And if we're overly ebullient, that's super annoying. <laughs> to people. So we try to really hear where they are and sort of what type of frustration it is so that our response can kind of be in line with that. How do you approach being real and human when the interaction is negative or becomes really negative? I think that's actually a time when my own humanity feels especially present because we really do feel it. And because we're trying to be real and human with customers already, when something is really negative, there isn't that type of buffer. Um, So you do sort of feel it emotionally. When something goes like that, it's often because someone is so frustrated that they are kind of forgetting that they're talking to a person as well. And especially because a lot of people don't have the experience of you know, looking for support and finding that there's a real person there who's reading them carefully and 
you know, thinking about them. And so I think sometimes people will feel like the only way to get what they need is to kind of go really big or forget about that human connection. And so I think the way to kind of bring it back down is to really show that we're hearing the person. And then when you are hiring new customer support team members, what do you look for in terms of hiring and especially um, asking for writing samples and stuff like that? With the writing sample, frequently, and I'm sure this was the case for me too, it definitely starts out a bit more formal just because, you know, when you're applying for something, you don't want to sound like a middle schooler using a, you know, cell phone to text somebody. But we can see if there's a sort of genuine tone underlying it that shows that even in this made up scenario of answering hypothetical questions, they're looking for the person on the other end of that question. The sort of nuts and bolts part of the writing sample in terms of is this the correct answer is a lot less important than the tone and and the kind of personal style we see through their answers. What do you think is the connection between poetry and writing customer support emails, at least the way it's done at Basecamp? I love that question. One thing about poetry, or at least the way I write it or the way I think about it, is that I'm looking for ways to be concise while also getting at something bigger. So with the emails... I think we're certainly trying to be very clear and direct. And so that's a nice kind of challenge that I do think is similar to the way I think about poetry, how to be clear and engaging while also thinking about a larger problem. So, I I mean, not every customer support email has a sort of grand ambition like that. And certainly not every poem does either. But I think in both cases, because I'm able to kind of use a more authentic style, that it does translate. If you stay until the end of the episode, we have a little treat for you. We have some recording of Elizabeth reading one of her poems. We have this kind of inside joke at base camp. It's a stock photo of a man in a business suit that we pass around. He's talking on his cell phone. He's super smiley. And the caption just says, haha business. Yeah, he's like leaning back and he's pumping a fist in the air. And this image comes up when we're mocking the corporate world, whether it's jargon or meetings or my personal bugaboo, poorly reported stories in Business Insider. So these cheesy stock photos are really fun and easy to mock, (laughs) but they do shape our reality in ways that we might not realize. They're storytelling devices. We get used to seeing businessmen depicted as white guys wearing suits, or a working mom depicted as a frazzled woman on her laptop holding a crying baby. That's where our next interview comes in. I talked to Jennifer Daniels. She founded a stock photo agency called Color Stock that features people of color in scenarios that portray a fuller view of reality. Everything about what her company does, from its images to its captions, reflects a sense of authenticity that Jennifer felt was missing from the stock photo industry. My name is Jennifer Daniels, and I am the founder and managing director of Colorstock. And Colorstock is a culturally intelligent stock photo marketplace. 
What does it mean to be culturally intelligent in this context? Uh, We don't use people to fill quotas. We go beyond just the mere appearance of diversity, and we're actually telling the authentic stories of people and their cultures. Can you tell me what your background is and how you use stock images in the career that you had before founding the company? But my mother was one of the first coders learning Fortran and COBOL back in the uh, mid 80s. And and so I always had tech as a, um, a thread in my life. But my profession always was centered around people and, and community. And so my degrees are in um, public relations and organizational communication. And that's the type of work that I did. Before founding Colorstock, Jennifer worked in public relations and marketing. One of the problems that I had um, when I was doing my work is we could never tell authentic stories visually. We just couldn't find people who looked like the customer or who looked like the people in the stories that we wanted to tell. So I started to fix this problem myself doing my work. I would um, either employ a, a, a photographer to come in and do special shoots for me and try to build my own internal libraries or literally spend hours looking for photos. I just got to a point where I just started doing selfies. I was just like, this is ridiculous. I'm really going to have to just take my own pictures. So I decided to learn how to code and I decided to learn how to shoot photography and learn as much as I could about this industry before launching Colorstock. So um, that is a long answer to get to. I had a pain point and I decided to fill it. When you were in these jobs and you were trying to find a photo, whether it's of, let's say, kids reading at the library or whatever it was, mm-hmm. would you just go through lots of lots and lots of search terms? Like, what would you type in to look for what you wanted? Oh, yeah. And so you just start with that old Boolean surge and you're like, oh, okay, books, okay, kids and books, okay, kids, libraries and books, you know, and you just keep going down this funnel and then you're finally like, okay, give me a Latina kid reading a book at the library. And then you just wouldn't get it. Do you have any favorite stock image memes? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, the one that's floating around um, now, we're in late August, the one with the guy looking at the girl with the boyfriend, like those <laughs> yeah. are hilarious to me. I also love powerful woman folding her arms in the boardroom. I love those. <laughs> those are hilarious because that's not even like realistic. I think someone listened to like the Susan Cain TED talk and then they were like, yes, power poses. <laughs> <laughs> like, get me so, 100 of those. <laughs> yes, exactly. Give me a, if someone even asked that, they was like, do you have one with a black lady? And I'm like, no, I don't have a like, because that's just not, I listen, if I go to a meeting and I'm standing there with my arms folded at the front, I'm not smiling. And then the serious side of that question to flip it and be like, okay, going beyond the humor you can ex- extract from it, if you kind of interrogate what the current roster of stock images looks like, I mean, it, it seems like it really tells you something about the media landscape, right? And like a kind of visual language that we take for granted that you're now yes. trying to break down, right? Yes. One of the theories that, you know, we learned in grad school was agenda setting theory and something as um, forgettable and nondescript as stock photography actually does set an agenda, and so when you have images that, you know, of the businesswoman with her arms folded, that reflects women consistently over and over and over again, looking angry at work, it actually feeds into the stereotype that, one, to be successful at work, women have to be male-like 
or two, when we're at work, we're mean and, and we don't want to help each other as women. And that's why some of the images that are chosen for the catalog for Colorstock go beyond that, you know, so that someone can see their full self at work, not a caricature of, of what someone thinks they would look like at work. Yeah. So what kind of guidelines do you give your photographers to create more realistic scenarios? So one of the biggest things is don't seek out models per se. Try to shoot your friends. Try to shoot people you know in their natural um, environments. So that's the framework. And then the actual asks for certain types of images come from the customers. Hey, do you have an image of a mixed couple or, or a brown couple searching for a home? Then beyond the visuals, can you tell me a little bit about the language of captions and descriptors? Um, How much thought goes into that language? Because I was browsing your social justice section and I noticed Mm -hmm. that, you know, they say things like women holding sign at peaceful demonstration. And um, I was like, yes, that is like literally what this picture happening. But I was like, it feels political to say peaceful demonstration. And not protest. No negative language. So I'm so glad you asked me that because for a good, the first six months of Colorstock, this was something that I struggled with with my former co-founder at the time and some of the contractors who were coming on board to helping us and just even the photographers in onboarding. The first batch of photos that went up, terms like black black woman sitting at the table or whatever were like used a lot. I, I even wrote a blog post about this where one of them said Prof- professional black people having a meeting. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I talked about how, yeah, that's what the, that's how the catalog was described at first. But I, but it just did not sit well with me. It did not. And I could even see that people were searching um, the catalog that way when we first launched. And it just didn't sit well to me because I was so intentional about creating this platform um, that I forgot to, I think I forgot how impactful it would be and how we could take a stand and not continue to other people. And so you're, you already know you're coming to Colorstock to see people of color, right? So we don't have to say Asian lady. It was intentional to remove those descriptors, to remove those things that othered people. And then to speak about people in the way that was the most positive and and the most reflective what was happening, the story that was being told in that image. And and that was a business decision that I'm sure hurt us at first, because, again, I tracked this data. I tracked how people were searching for the images and they were searching for a black man or Asian woman or Latina woman. Um, And so I knew that we would lose sales if people couldn't find per se what they were looking for with those othering terms. But it was more important to me that that we took a stand um, in, in, in that regard as opposed to lose a sale or two. I was looking at your catalog and, um, you know, I happened upon a series of photos of these really adorable African-American girls with yoga mats who are all doing yoga and like mm-hmm. going to and from a yoga class. And it occurred to me what um, an absence of those kinds of image I've seen yeah. Um, and, you know, that the fact that an image kind of stopped me in my tracks almost because I'm like, I've never seen yes. that before. The work is necessary. Right. And so that's what gets me up in the morning, that I know that there that there is systemic change happening when someone uses an image. Right. But just like you said, to think that 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 would even be an image 
or a set of images that we would have to portray because, you know, society tells you that um, young black girls don't do yoga or or they're not concerned about their bodies. That's not necessarily the world that I live in. My children do yoga. I do yoga. So I'm glad that image helped stop your tracks because actually when I saw it from that particular photographer, I was like, yes, yes, yes. This is exactly what I was talking about. You know, I, I actually have a series of just my daughter and her friend at coding class that was very necessary. And when they were launched, I think it was like two summers ago, a lot of coding classes and a lot of nonprofit organizations who were having coding classes for children of color began to utilize those photos. Um, And one actually got back to me and said, we sold out of our seats and we had so much um, clamoring. People were clamoring for the classes that we had enough to go back and ask for another grant to do it again in the fall. So that's when you see how something as simple as an image can actually turn into some real systemic change for people um, and how it really can affect the bottom line of business. Right. So inclusivity is smart um, because it, it, you know, it it does affect business. It's more than just, um, oh, you know, a nice to have. It's necessary. Appearances are important in business. You want to project that haha business image so that your customers, coworkers, or investors think you're in control and doing great. But the reality is that sometimes things are not great. And that brings us to our final story about Dabble, an online platform where you can find classes in your city for anything from glass blowing to salsa dance to foraging for wild plants. Dabble was founded in 2011, and two years later, 2013, Dabble was grappling with layoffs and a dwindling bank account. The founders decided to try something radical. They set up a website where every day for a month, they would write a diary entry about what was happening in the business and how they were feeling. They called it 30 Days of Honesty. Uh, my name is Jess Leibach, and I was a co-founder of Dabble. And my name is Erin Hopman Keck, um, and I was also a co-founder of Dabble with Jess. Can you uh, kind of lay the scene for where you were with the company when you decided to launch the Honesty Project? It was August of 2013, just over two years of post-launching Dabble. And like six months prior, I feel like we had been kind of at a high. We had just left startup and residence program with IDEO in Chicago, and we had a team of close to seven people. And that summer, we knew we were reaching the end of our runway, and we weren't successful at raising additional capital um, to sustain the team. So we had just gone through, like, layoffs. So we were, like, smaller than ever. We had, you know, I think from a um, morale perspective, we and the two people remaining were kind of at a low, low point. We had tried a lot of different things um, and a lot of different initiatives to sort of right the ship, find the right business model. We kind of got to a point where we were in some ways stalled. And meanwhile, you know, we, we were asking for help, but it's really difficult in the startup community to really ask for help because everybody's always talking about how much they're killing it and how um, everything's going great. And it, it truly was not going great for us. And so... You know, we were at a point where we needed support and I guess thought of a very public way in order to garner that support and and really rally around trying to figure things out for our business. How did you come up with the idea? I had read um, on the website that there might have been a a few different inspirations. Um, Can you talk about what some of those were? 
it was 40 days of dating was a blog that had gotten a decent amount of press at that point in time. It was two friends, I think out of New York who decided who were single and eternally single and thought, what if we dated each other and blogged about it Had design backgrounds and they made it really cool. And, and um, they were brutally honest. And I think we knew about it. And I think, I think it was Jess, wasn't it Jess? Who was like, <laughs> so what if we did something now. similar to, to with our business? Did anyone say, oh God, don't do it. This is a bad idea. I certainly told family, friends, uh, close colleagues, and as well as, you know, just people that we knew sort of in the business world. I, th- I think, you know, when, when you're excited about something and, and maybe the look in my eyes, <laughs> I was like, hey, we're going to do this hell or high water. You know, we didn't, we didn't receive too much uh, feedback, but course there's always you know my my parents when I told them I remember you know my dad was a, a small investor and dabble as well was sort of like oh are you really are you really going to do this what did your advisors your investors think well you mentioned your father but um you had some outside advisors and investors who are not friends and family did you get any feedback from them before you launched you know we didn't we intentionally did not I think ask permission to launch it because I think we realized this is our company we can do what we want and we feel strongly about doing this we sent out um, an email the day that we launched it to investors. So it, we didn't ask for permission. We, we just let them know it was happening the day it launched and pointed them to it. We, when we got some positive feedback from a handful of investors. That was sh- like right off the bat, if I remember correctly. But one, <laughs> it was a very memorable day. I think it was probably like, I don't know what you would say, Jess, like two weeks into the month where I got a call, a pretty angry call from one investor in particular he was not happy. I think he wanted to kind of have it be more of a like, oh, everything's going well, you know, and and that's the way to invite more investment if that's what we were looking for, as opposed to showing our cards. What was it like to actually get the thing going and see what the responses were like? Because I'm sure a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Can you talk a little bit about (laughs) just what it was like in your inbox during this time? Some of the more powerful responses that we received um, were from other business owners who had oh, themselves, yeah. you know, sort of ridden the roller coaster of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and were just thankful that they could see a little bit of themselves um, in what we were blogging about and talking about every day. And, you know, honestly, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, the tweets that Elon Musk has put out into the world recently about the ups and downs and, you know, it's really easy to, to look at another company or, or another, you know, in Elon Musk's uh, case, you know, a titan of an industry and just assume that they've got everything all together. And, you know, as an entrepreneur that you're experiencing these ups and downs and you think everybody else has their shit together and you don't. Um, and, and it's a, a conflicting feeling. So I think some of the, you know, on, on the emotional aspect of things, some of the, the most rewarding comments came flooding in from from folks who had a business and had experienced similar thoughts and um, were just appreciative of us putting that out there. Were there things that happened that you decided not to write about for whatever reason, whether it was you needed to protect the privacy of some people involved in discussions or whatever the case might have been? I mean, were there limits to how honest you could be or wanted to be in that format? I think the beginning, we, we sort of struggled with that. Like, how do we phrase this? Um, so that it's perceived in a certain way by investors and by our teachers and by our students and you know, by our you know champions within the, the tech community. 
And I, I think what we realized was that we, we did kind of need one story and we needed to just be ourselves and, and lay it out on the line. And so there certainly were some things that, um, you know, we were brainstorming about, you know, maybe day seven that hadn't quite crystallized into a real idea that we weren't just sharing everything, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, because if things, if things weren't solid yet, um, it doesn't make sense to, to share. But um, I, I think we were fairly transparent about the ups and downs. And, you know, when you start a project called 30 Days of Honesty, like, I think we kind of kept ourselves to that. And um, certainly the emotional aspects of things, which we highlighted the most, I think, on the blog, were fairly raw, I think, throughout the process. And I, I know at least for myself, I did my best not to filter. And it seems like um, the big narrative from the business side of 30 Days of Honesty is the story of um, you tweaking your fee structure, kind of making a decision about it, uh, talking to teachers, getting feedback from your teachers, and then um, still changing the fee structure, but doing it in a different way than than you had originally planned. Um, and do you think that the way you decided on the fee structure and ultimately rolled that out, do you think that it would have happened in more or less the same way without the project? Or was there some feedback you got as a result of the project that ended up shaping kind of that business idea? One thing that was surprising was how many teachers recommended that we increase the cut that we took from what they got. We were hesitant to do that. And I think it allowed us, it was something we had discussed, but I think putting the project out there and getting that feedback was the vote of confidence we needed to move forward with it. I don't know that we would have done it without the feedback. And I think the feedback might have been different if it if we hadn't have gotten it through a vehicle like 30 Days of Honesty. If we sent an email and just announced, hey, teachers, we're now taking X percent more, um, I'm guessing the response would have been more negative. I mean, when you look back, um, for you – are the biggest impacts or benefits of that project four years later, do they feel more personal, what this project did for you personally, the emotional catharsis you had mentioned earlier, or do they feel more business related? I think the the emotional is probably what's stuck with us for the longest, but the business aspects of, of helping us move forward with a, a big change in our business within a very short period of time, I think was the the short-term benefit that we saw, um, you know, four years ago. Yeah, I, I think it really lives on, um, on on the emotional side, at least for myself. But certainly it was, it was a huge help to catalyze a lot of action within a very short period of time. I was reading it um, on my way to work this morning. I take the bus, so definitely not in the car. But um, I, I, I texted Aaron immediately. And it was so much nostalgia and sort of, a I think, a cool project um, that I'm certainly proud of. And you know, we still pay the hosting fees for it to, to keep out in the world. <laughs> I did start a journal about six months after this project ended. I don't know that I, it was it directly a result of it. I think Jess and I are, we can be private people, but this, this helped to, I think, make us, force us to be a little bit more, you know, when you do something like this, it felt really good. Those 30 days, despite the fact that we were You know, it's not like the business turned around in a day. We, I think we felt better about things than we had in months. In 
2014, Dabble relocated from Chicago to St. Louis and got a grant from a nonprofit that supports early stage businesses. Jess and Aaron eventually left Dabble to do other things. The company continued on under a new CEO and moved back to Chicago. It's still around today, and you can take a knife throwing class like Sean did once. Darn right. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Our theme music is Broken by Design by Clipart. You can find Colorstock at getcolorstock.com and Dabble at dabble.co. Jess and Aaron's diary can be found at 30daysofhonesty.com. I'll post links to these things in the show notes for this episode at rework.fm. Thanks to Meredith Turk, Amy Brady, Catherine Rowland, and Jonathan Tramfam. And remember, if you stick around in just a few seconds, we have our very own Elizabeth Graham reading one of her poems that was originally published in Guernica Magazine. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review in Iambic Pentameter on Apple Podcasts. You can also find Rework on the Breaker app. And if you like us on Breaker, it'll help other people discover our show. Oh, and remember, if you want one of your questions answered on the air by Jason, David, or someone else here at Basecamp or on the Rework podcast, give us a call at 708-628-7850. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks. Worms. One. Wet pets lounge out in the trees. All the abandoned bits children leave. Beyond what the self wants. To be bigger, less attached. We say, we came here because we love it and want to know it more. And, golly, you're not my niece. You're my granddaughter. Life consists of these little touches of solitude. As in a postcard photograph titled, where I roost, and everyone else is captivated by the glint of the phonograph horn, but you're enraptured by the pillowcases embroidered ice skaters. Two. Entirely of possibility is the name of a bench in Grand Central. No, in a park, a very big one. And the bench is by a pond where you might go to eat an old sandwich one day. The park's capped by a castle, and despite picturing the entire scene perfectly, and even with a memory of mincing up the steps to the opera in a new black dress, you will never know it. Entirely of possibility is the name of the ship that sailed Lake Superior, and many years later, they found all the doorknobs planted in the cold lake bottom. Knob bulbs, sprouted gold, too heavy to surface. Entirely of possibility in gilt, stenciled on the ship's model, housed in a plexiglass box mounted over the dinner table. One day the box is inexplicably filled with minnows. Minnows, they are so stupid. They thought a ship meant water. Three. A man says, I have learned people say things with their faces, eyes and mouths, and even their hands. He watches Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a 
A camera watches his eyes, as eyes are of and separate from. So, facts. The eye sees the blonde's big teeth, not her blondness. Not the bulb, but the small bead swaying at the end of the string. Neither hollers nor umbrella revolver. Darts instead to the edges of things. The actor's selves are spokes spun outward, and the eye avoids the hub. Four. Torsade de Pointe is the most beautiful expression of twisted waves on an electrocardiogram, which is a garment of shocking loveliness, long-sleeved with polished buttons, two empty pockets to mimic the lower chambers, how they shake. It is lovely, isn't it? Entirely of possibility, and the sidewalks are lively with meaning. We agree a blue jay is the kind of bird who would don a bobby hat, and wield a nightstick. The crows know faces, caw back. After rain, a worm just wants to get out a little, see a little beyond the dirt den. But the shame of it is, a worm is easily flattened, and a worm at night on a wet sidewalk is simple to confuse for no more than a snapped stick. Stick.